Book twelve, part two of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee, the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume four by Francois René de Chateaubriand, translated by Alexander Teixeira de Matos. Book twelve, part two. I saw for a moment in Rome in eighteen o three the Cardinal of York, Henry the Ninth that last of the Stuarts, then seventy-nine years of age. He had had the weakness to accept a pension from George III. The widow of Charles I had in vain begged one from Cromwell. Thus the House of Stuart took one hundred and nineteen years to die out, after losing the throne which it never recovered. Three pretenders have handed on to one another in exile the shadow of a crown. They had intelligence and courage. What did they lack? The hand of God. Besides, the Stuarts consoled themselves at the sight of Rome, they were but one slight accident the more in those vast fragments, a small shattered column raised in the midst of a great burial ground of ruins. Their house, in disappearing from the world, enjoyed yet this further comfort. It saw the fall of old Europe. The fatality clinging to the Stuarts dragged other kings with them to the dust, among whom was Louis Seize, whose grandfather had refused an asylum to the descendant of Charles I. And Charles X has died in exile at the age of the Cardinal of York, and his son and his grandson are wanderers on the face of the earth. Lalon's journey in Italy in 1765 and 1766 remains the best and the most exact as regards the Rome of the arts and of antiquities. I like to read the historians and poets, he says, but one could not read them with more pleasure than when treading the soil which bore them, climbing the hills they describe, and watching the flow of the rivers they have sung. That is not so bad for an astronomer who used to eat spiders. Duclos, who is almost as lean and dry as Lalonde, makes this shrewd observation. The plays of the different nations give a fairly correct image of their manners. Harlequin, the valet and the principal character in the Italian comedies, is always represented with a great desire for eating, which comes from an habitual need. Our own comedy valets are commonly drunkards, which may imply debauchery, but not penury. The declamatory admiration of Dupaty offers no compensation for the aridity of Duclos and Lalande. Still, it makes one feel the presence of Rome. One feels by reflex that eloquence of descriptive style is born under the breath of Rousseau, Spiraculum Vitae. Dupaty approaches the new school which was soon to substitute sentimentality, obscurity and mannerism for the truthfulness, clarity and naturalness of Voltaire. Nevertheless, across his affected jargon, Dupaty observes correctly. He explains the patience of the people of Rome through the age of their successive pontiffs. A pope, he says, is always to them a dying king. Dupaty sees night approach at the Villa Borghese. There remains but one ray of day. It is expiring on the brow of that Venus. Would the poets of our day say better? He takes leave of Tivoli. Adieu, thou valley. I am a stranger. I do not inhabit your beautiful Italy. I shall never behold you more. But perhaps my children, some at least of my children, will come to visit you one day, appear but as charming in their eyes as you have to their father. Some of the children of the scholar and poet have visited Rome, and they could have seen the last ray of sunlight expire on the brow of the Venus genitrix of Dupati. Scarce had Dupati left Rome when Goethe came to take his place. Did the President of the Parliament of Bordeaux ever hear speak of Goethe? And nevertheless the name of Goethe lives on this earth, when that of Dupati has vanished. It is not that I love the mighty genius of Germany. I have little sympathy for the poet of matter. 
I feel Schiller, I understand Goethe. There may be great beauties in the enthusiasm which Goethe experiences in Rome for Jupiter. Excellent critics think so. But I prefer the God of the Cross to the God of Olympus. I look in vain for the author of Werther on the banks of the Tiber. I find him only in this phrase. My present life is, as it were, a dream of youth. We shall see if I am fated to enjoy it, or to recognise that this too is vain, as so many others have been. When Napoleon's eagle allowed Rome to escape from its claws, she fell back into the bosom of her peaceful pastors. Then Byron appeared at the crumbling walls of the Caesars. He flung his distressed imagination over so many ruins, like a mourning cloak. Rome, thou hadst a name, he gave thee another. That name will cling to thee, he called thee. The Niobe of nations, there she stands, childless and crownless in her voiceless woe, an empty urn within her withered hands whose holy dust was scattered long ago. After that last storm of poetry, Byron was not long in dying. I might have seen Byron at Geneva, and I did not see him. I might have seen Goethe at Weimar, and I did not see him. But I saw Madame de Stael die, who, disdaining to live beyond her youth, passed swiftly to the capital with Corinne. Imperishable names, illustrious ashes, which have associated themselves with the name and the ashes of the eternal city. Thus have the changes in manners and persons proceeded from century to century in Italy, but the great transformation has been worked above all by our two occupations of Rome. The Roman Republic, established under the influence of the Directorate, ridiculous as it was with its two consuls and its lictors, scurvy facchini taken from the populace, for all that made excellent innovations in the civil laws. It was from the prefectures invented by that Roman Republic, that Bonaparte borrowed the institution of his own prefects. We brought to Rome the germ of an administration which had no existence. Rome, become the chief town of the department of the Tiber, was superlatively well ruled. Its mortgage system it owes to us. The suppression of the convents, the sale of ecclesiastical property sanctioned by Pius VII, have diminished the faith in the permanence of the consecration of religious things. The famous index, which still makes a little noise on our side of the Alps, makes none at all in Rome. For a few bayocchi you obtain permission to read the forbidden work with a safe conscience. The index is one of those works which remain as evidences of the old times in the midst of the new. In the republics of Rome and Athens were not the titles of king, the names of the great families adhering to the monarchy, respectfully preserved. It is only the French who foolishly take offence at their tombs and their annals, who hurl down the crosses, devastate the churches, out of grudge against the clergy of the year of grace a thousand or eleven hundred. There is nothing more puerile or more stupid than those reminiscent outrages, nothing which would tend more to the belief that we are incapable of anything serious whatsoever, that the true principles of liberty will forever remain unknown to us. Far from despising the past we ought, as all nations do, to treat it as a venerable greybeard who sits by our fireside telling what he has seen. What harm can he do us? He instructs and amuses us with his stories, his ideas, his language, his manners, his habits of former days. But he is without strength, and his hands are weak and trembling. Can it be that we are afraid of that contemporary of our fathers, who would already be with them in the tomb if he could die, and who has no authority save that of their dust? The French, passing through Rome, left their principles there. That is what always happens when the conquest is accomplished by a people more advanced in civilization than the people which undergoes that conquest, as witness the Greeks in Asia under Alexander, 
as witnessed the French in Europe under Napoleon. Bonaparte, when snatching sons from their mothers, when forcing the Italian nobility to leave its palaces and bear arms, was hastening the transformation of the national spirit. As to the physiognomy of Roman society, on days of concerts or balls one might have thought himself in Paris. The Altieri's, the Palestrinas, the Zagarolos, the Del Dragos, the Lantes, the Lozzanos, would not have felt strangers in the drawing-rooms of the Faubourg Saint-Germain. Still, some of those women wear a certain frightened air which has, I believe, to do with the climate. The charming Falconieri, for instance, always stands near a door, ready to fly to the Monte Mario, if you look at her. The Villa Milini belongs to her, a novel placed in that abandoned lodge under the cypress trees, in view of the sea, would have its value. But whatever the changes in manners and persons, from century to century, in Italy may be, we observe a habit of greatness there, which we paltry barbarians cannot approach. There still remains Roman blood in Rome, and the traditions of the masters of the world. When one sees foreigners crowned into small new houses at the Porta del Popolo, or lodged in palaces which they have divided into boxes and pierced with chimneys, it is as though one saw rats scratching at the feet of the monuments of Apollodorus and Michelangelo, and gnawing holes into the pyramids. Today the Roman nobles, ruined by the revolution, immure themselves within their palaces, live parsimoniously, and have become their own stewards. When you have the good fortune, which happens very rarely, to be received by them in the evening, you pass through vast halls, unfurnished and scarcely lighted, along which antique statues stand out white against the thick shadow, like phantoms or exhumed corpses. At the end of those halls the ragged footman who leads the way ushers you into a sort of gynecium. Around a table are seated three or four old or young ill-dressed women, plying their needles at fancy-work by the light of a lamp, and exchanging a few words with a father, a brother, a husband, recumbent in the dim background on tattered armchairs. Nevertheless, there is something, I know not what, fine, sovereign, appertaining to high breeding, in this assemblage entrenched behind its masterpieces, and giving a first impression of a witch's sabbath. The species of the Sissus Bay is extinct, although a few shawl-bearing and foot-warmer-carrying abbeys survive. Here and there a cardinal still fixes himself in a woman's house, like a sofa. Nepotism and pontifical scandals are no longer possible, just as kings can no longer keep titular and honoured mistresses. Nowadays, when politics and the tragic adventures of love have ceased to fill the lives of the great ladies of Rome, how do they spend their time in the interior of their homes? It would be interesting to get to the bottom of these new manners. If I stay in Rome, I shall make it my business to do so. I visited Tivoli in 1803. At that time, I said, in a narrative which was printed then, this spot is suited to reflection and daydreams. I go back into my past life. I feel the burden of the present. I seek to penetrate the future. Where shall I be? What shall I be doing? And what shall I be twenty years hence? Twenty years? It seemed a century to me. I thought myself certain of inhabiting my tomb before that century had lapsed. And it is not I that have passed away, but the master of the world and his empire that have sped. Almost all the ancient and modern travellers saw in the Roman Campania only what they call its horror and its nudity. Montaigne himself, who assuredly was not lacking in imagination, says, Far away on the left lay the Apennines. The aspect of the foreground was exceedingly unpleasant to the eye. Hilly, with every here and there, deep marshes, the country open, barren, and altogether destitute of trees, 
and almost equally so of houses the protestant milton casts upon the roman campagna a look as dry and barren as his faith lalande and the president de brosse are as blind as milton only in m de bonstetten's voyage sur la scene des six derniers livres de l'enéide published at geneva in eighteen o four one year after my letter to m de fontaine printed in the mercure at the end of the year eighteen o three do we find any true sensations of that admirable solitude and even they are mingled with objurgations what a pleasure to read virgil under the sky of aeneas and so to speak in the presence of the gods of homer says m de bonstetten what a profound solitude in these deserts in which we behold only the sea ruined woods trees great meadows and not one inhabitant in a vast extent of country i saw but a single house and that house was near me on the summit of a hill i went to it it had no door i climbed a staircase i entered a sort of chamber a bird of prey had built its nest there i stood some time at the window of that abandoned house i saw at my feet that declivity so rich and so magnificent in pliny's day now uncultivated since my description of the roman campagna they have passed from disparagement to enthusiasm the english and french travellers who have followed me have marked all their steps from the slaughter to rome by ecstasies m de tournon in his etude statistique enters the road of admiration which i had the happiness to open the roman campagna he says unfolds more distinctly at each step the serious beauty of its immense lines its numerous plains and its fine frame of mountains its monotonous grandeur impresses and elevates the thought i have no need to mention m simon whose journey reads like a wager so much does he amuse himself by looking at rome upside down i was at geneva when he died almost suddenly a farmer he had just cut his hay and gaily reaped his first grain when he went to join his mown grass and his gathered harvest we have a few letters of the great landscape painters poussin and claude lorraine do not say a word about the roman campagna but if their pen is silent their brush speaks the agro romano was a mysterious source of beauty at which they drew while hiding it by a sort of avarice of genius and as it were in fear lest it should be profaned by the vulgar strange that it should be french eyes that best saw the light of italy i have read again my letter to m de fontaine on rome written five-and-twenty years ago and i confess that i found it so exact that it would be impossible for me to take away or add a word to it a foreign company has come this winter eighteen twenty nine to propose to clear the roman campagna ah gentlemen spare us your cottages and your english gardens on the geniculum if ever they were to disfigure the waste lands against which the ploughshare of cincinnatus struck on which all the grasses bend before the breath of the centuries i should fly rome never to set foot in it again go to drag your improved ploughs elsewhere here the earth grows and must grow only tombs the cardinals have closed their ears to the calculations of the commercial adventurers hastening to demolish the ruins of tusculum which they mistake for the castles of aristocrats they would have made lime with the marble of the sarcophagus of aemilius paulus even as they have made water shoots with the lead of the coffins of our ancestors the sacred college clings to the past besides it has been proved to the great confusion of the economists that the roman campagna paid the owners five per cent as pasture land and that it would not yield more than one and a half in corn it is not through idleness but through practical interest that the cultivator of the plains gives a preference to pastorizia over magesi the produce of an acre in the roman territory is almost equal to the produce of the same measure in the best french departments to convince oneself of that one has but to read the work of monsignore nicolai 
I have told you that at first I had a sense of weariness at the commencement of my second journey to Rome, and that I ended by recovering under the influence of the ruins and the sun. I was still under my first impression when, on the 3rd of November, 1828, I wrote to Monsieur Villemain. Your letter, Monsieur, was very welcome in my Roman solitude. It has stayed my homesickness, from which I was suffering badly. That complaint is nothing else than my years, which deprive my eyes of the power of seeing as they saw before. My own ruin is not great enough to find consolation in that of Rome. When I now wander alone amid all these remains of the centuries, they no longer serve me as a scale by which to measure time. I go back into the past, I see what I have lost, and the end of the short future that lies before me. I count all the joys which I might have left, I find none of them. I make an effort to admire what I used to admire, and I admire it no longer. I come home to undergo my honours, overcome by the Sirocco and stabbed by the Tramontane. There you have all my life, save only a tomb, which I have not yet had the courage to visit. We pay great attention to crumbling monuments. We keep them up. We rid them of their plants and flowers. The women whom I had left young have become old, and the ruins have become young again. What would you have one do here? Well, I assure you, monsieur, that I long only to return to my Rue d'Enfer, never again to leave it. I have fulfilled all my engagements towards my country and my friends. Once you and Monsieur Bertrand de Vaux have entered the State Council, I shall have nothing more to ask, for your talents will soon carry you higher. My retirement has, I hope, done a little to bring about the cessation of a formidable opposition. Public liberty has been won for France for ever. My sacrifice must now end with my role in life. I ask nothing but to return to my infirmary. I have nothing but praise for this country. I have been admirably received. I have found a government full of tolerance and very well informed of affairs outside Italy. But when all is said and done, nothing pleases me more than the idea of disappearing entirely from the world's scene. It is good to be preceded to the tomb by the silence which one will find there. I thank you for being so good as to speak to me of your labours. You will write a work which will be worthy of you and increase your reputation. If you have any researches to make here, have the kindness to tell me of them. A rummage in the Vatican might furnish you with treasures. Alas, I saw but too much of that poor Monsieur Thierry. I assure you that I am haunted by his memory, so young, so full of love for his work, and to go. And, as always happens with real merit, his mind was improving, and reason with him, taking the place of system. I still hope for a miracle. I have written on his behalf. I have not even had an answer. I have been more fortunate for you, and a letter from Monsieur de Martignac gives me to hope at last that justice, although tardy and incomplete, will be done you. I no longer live, Monsieur, except for my friends. You must permit me to include yourself in the number of those who are still left to me. I remain, Monsieur, with as much sincerity as admiration, your most devoted servant, Chateaubriand. To Madame Recamier, Rome, Saturday, 8th November, 1832. Monsieur de la Ferronnay informs me of the surrender of Varna, which I knew. I believe that I once told you that the whole question seemed to me to lie in the fall of that place, and that the Grand Turk would not dream of peace until the Russians had done what they did not do in their earlier wars. Our newspapers have been wretchedly Turco-filled these last times. How can they ever have been able to forget the noble cause of Greece, and to fall into admiration before the barbarians who spread slavery and pestilence over the country of great men and the fairest portion of Europe? That is what we are, we French. A trifle of personal discontent makes us forget our principles and the most generous sentiments. The Turks, when beaten, will perhaps arouse some pity in me. The Turks victorious would fill me with horror. So my friend Monsieur de la Ferronnay remains in power. 
I flatter myself that my determination to follow him has got rid of the competitors for his office. But after all, I shall have to leave this. I now long only to return to my solitude and to quit the career of politics. I thirst for independence in my last years. New generations have arisen. They will find the public liberty established for which I fought so hard. Let them then lay hold of, but let them not misuse my inheritance, and let me go to die in peace near you. I went two days ago to walk in the grounds of the Villa Panfili. What a beautiful solitude. Rome, Saturday, 15th November. There has been a first ball at Torlonia's. I met all the English on earth there. I thought myself still ambassador in London. The Englishwomen appear to me to be figurantes who are engaged to dance in the winter in Paris, Milan, Rome, Naples, and who return to London in the spring, when their engagements have expired. The hoppings on the ruins of the capital, the uniform manners which great society puts on everywhere, are very strange things. If even I had the resource of escape into the deserts of Rome. What is really deplorable here, what clashes with the nature of the place, is that multitude of insipid Englishwomen and frivolous dandies who, holding each other linked by the arm, as the bats do by the wing, parade their eccentricity, their boredom and their insolence at your receptions, and make themselves at home in your house as at an inn. This vagrant and swaggering Great Britain makes for your seats at public solemnities, and boxes with you to turn you out of them. All day long it hastily swallows pictures and ruins, and in the evening it comes to swallow cakes and ices at your parties, feeling that it confers a great honour upon you in doing so. I do not know how an ambassador can endure those unmannerly guests, nor why he does not show them his door. I have spoken in the Congress de Véron of the existence of my memorandum on Eastern affairs. When I sent it in 1828 to M. le Comte de la Ferronnay, then Minister for Foreign Affairs, the world was not what it is. In France, the legitimacy existed. In Russia, Poland had not perished. Spain was still Bourbon. England had not yet the honour of protecting us. Many things, therefore, have become old in this memorandum. Today my foreign policy would in many respects be different. Twelve years have altered diplomatic relations. But the basis of the truths has remained the same. I have inserted this memorandum in its entirety in order once more to revenge the restoration, for the absurd reproaches which continue to be obstinately addressed to it, in spite of the evidence of facts. The restoration, so soon as it had chosen its ministers from among its friends, never ceased to occupy itself with the independence and honour of France. It protested against the treaties of Vienna. It demanded protective frontiers, not for the vainglory of pushing itself to the banks of the Rhine, but to ensure its safety. It laughed when they talked to it of the equilibrium of Europe, an equilibrium so unjustly broken where it was concerned. That was why it first wished to cover itself on the south, because it had pleased the others to disarm it on the north. At Navarino it recovered a navy and the liberty of Greece. The East in question did not take it unawares. I have kept three opinions on the East from the time at which I wrote that memorandum. First, if Turkey in Europe is to be broken up, we must have a share in that distribution, in the shape of an increase of territory on our frontiers, and the ownership of some military point in the archipelago. To compare the partition of Turkey with the partition of Poland is an absurdity. Secondly, to regard Turkey as it was during the reign of Francis I, as a useful power to our policy, is to do away with three centuries of history. Thirdly, to prevent to civilise Turkey by giving her steamboats and railways, by disciplining her armies, by teaching her to work her fleets, is not to extend civilization to the east, but to introduce barbarism into the west. 
Ibrahim's to come would be able to carry back the future to the time of Charles the Hammer, or to the time of the siege of Vienna, when Europe was saved by that heroic Poland on whom weighs the ingratitude of kings. I must remark that I was the only one, with Benjamin Constant, to point out the improvidence of the Christian governments. A people whose social order is based upon slavery and polygamy is a people that must be sent back to the steppes of the Mongols. In the last result, Turkey and Europe, become a vassal of Russia by virtue of the Treaty of Unki Askelesi, no longer exists. If the question is to be decided at once, which I doubt, it would perhaps be better that an independent empire should have its seat in Constantinople and form Greece into a whole. Is that possible? I do not know. As for Mehmet Ali, the relentless tax-gatherer and customs-house officer, Egypt, in so far as French interests are concerned, is better guarded by him than she would be by the English. But here am I exerting myself to demonstrate the honour of the restoration. Why, who troubles himself about what it has done? Who, above all, will trouble himself about it some years hence? It would be as well worth my while to become excited over the interests of Tyre and Ecbatana. The past world is gone, never to return. After Alexander, the Roman power commenced. After Caesar, Christianity changed the world. After Charmaine, the feudal knight gave birth to a new society. After Napoleon, nothing. We see no empire come, nor religion, nor barbarians. Civilization has risen to its highest level, but it is a material civilization, an unfruitful civilization, which can produce nothing, since life can be given only by moral means. We can arrive at the creation of the peoples only by the roads of heaven. Railways will lead us only more swiftly to the abyss. You now have the prolegomena which seem to me necessary for the understanding of the memorandum which follows, and which is also to be found at the Foreign Office. Letter to Monsieur le Comte de la Ferronnay, Rome, 30th November, 1828. In your private letter of the 10th of November, my noble friend, you said, I send you a brief summary of our political situation, and you will be kind enough to let me, in return, have your ideas, which are always so useful to know in matters of this sort. Your friendship, noble Count, judges me too indulgently. I do not in the least believe that I shall be enlightening you by sending you the memorandum annexed. I merely obey you. Memorandum, part one. At the distance at which I am placed from the theatre of events, and in my almost total ignorance of the state of negotiations, I can scarcely reason fitly. Nevertheless, as I have long had a definite system touching the foreign policy of France, as I was, so to speak, the first to call for the emancipation of Greece, I readily, noble Count, submit my ideas to your judgment. There was as yet no question of the treaty of the 6th of July, when I published my note on Greece. That note contained the germ of the treaty. I proposed to the five great powers of Europe to address a collective dispatch to the divan, imperatively to demand the cessation of all hostility between the port and the Hellenes. In case of refusal, the five powers were to declare that they recognised the independence of the Greek government and that they would receive the representatives of that government. This note was read by the several cabinets. The position which I had occupied as Minister for Foreign Affairs lent some importance to my opinion. What is singular is that Prince Metternich showed himself less opposed to my note than Mr. Canning. The latter, with whom I had had fairly intimate relations, was an orator rather than a great politician, a man of talent rather than a statesman. He entertained a certain jealousy of success in general, and especially of that of France. When the parliamentary opposition either wounded or exalted his self-esteem, he flung himself into false measures, 
he launched out into sarcasm or boasting. It was thus that, after the Spanish War, he rejected the demand for intervention, which I had extracted with so much difficulty from the Cabinet of Madrid, for the settlement of affairs across the Atlantic. The secret reason was that he had not himself made that demand, and he refused to see that, even according to his system, always presuming that he had one, England, represented in a general congress, would in no way be bound by the acts of that congress, and would always remain free to act separately. It was thus again that Mr. Canning moved troops into Portugal, not to defend a charter at which he was the first to laugh, but because the opposition reproached him with the presence of our soldiers in Spain, and he wanted to be able to say that the British army was occupying Lisbon as the French army occupied Cadiz. Lastly, it was thus that he signed the treaty of the 6th of July against his private opinion, against the opinion of his country, which was unfavourable to the cause of the Greeks. If he agreed to that treaty, it was solely because he was afraid of seeing us take the initiative in the question with Russia, and gain the glory of a generous resolution alone. That minister, who after all will leave a great reputation, also thought that he was hindering Russia's movements by this very treaty. Nevertheless, it was clear that the text of the instrument in no way tied down the Emperor Nicholas, and in no way obliged him to waive a war of his own with Turkey. The Treaty of the 6th of July is a crude document, hurriedly drafted, devoid of all foresight and teeming with contradictory provisions. In my note on Greece, I presuppose the adhesion of the five great powers, as Austria and Prussia have kept aloof. Their neutrality leaves them free, according to events, to declare for or against either of the belligerent parties. There is no longer any question of going back to the past. We must take things as they are. All that the governments are obliged to do is to make the most of the facts when they are accomplished. Let us therefore examine those facts. We are occupying the Morea. The towns on that peninsula have fallen into our hands. So much for what concerns ourselves. Varna is taken. Varna becomes an outpost at seventy hours march from Constantinople. The Dardanelles are blockaded. The Russians will, in the course of the winter, seize Silistria and some other fortresses. Numbers of recruits will arrive. In the early days of spring, all will move for a decisive campaign. In Asia, General Paskevich has invaded three Pashaliks. He commands the sources of the Euphrates and threatens the road to Erzeruam. So much for what concerns Russia. Would the Emperor Nicholas have done better to undertake a winter campaign in Europe? I think so, if it were possible. By marching on Constantinople, he would have cut the Gordian knot and put an end to all diplomatic intrigue. People embrace the side of success. The way to secure allies is to be victorious. As for Turkey, it has been made clear to me that she would have declared war on us if Russia had failed before Varna. Will she have the good sense today to open up negotiations with England and France, if only to rid herself of both? Austria would gladly advise her to adopt that course, but it is difficult to foresee the conduct of a race of men who have not European ideas. At the same time cunning as slaves and haughty as tyrants, with them anger is never tempered by anything save fear. Sultan Mahmud II appears in some respects to be a superior prince to the last sultans. He has, above all, political courage. But has he personal courage? He is content to hold reviews in the suburbs of his capital, and he lets himself be entreated by the magnates not to go even so far as Adrianople. The mob of Constantinople would be better held in check by triumphs than by the presence of its master. 
Let us, however, admit that the divan consents to a parley on the basis of the Treaty of the 6th of July. The negotiation would be a very intricate one. Even if one had only to fix the limits of Greece, there would be no end to it. Where shall those limits be placed on the continent? How many islands shall be restored to liberty? Shall Samos, which has so gallantly defended its independence, be abandoned? Let us look further. Suppose the conference to be established. Will it paralyse the armies of the Emperor Nicholas? While the plenipotentiaries of the Turks and of the three allied powers are treating in the archipelago, every step of the invading forces in Bulgaria will change the state of the question. If the Russians were repulsed, the Turks would break up the conference. If the Russians arrived at the gates of Constantinople, there would be a fine question of the independence of the Morea. The Hellens would need neither protectors nor negotiators. Therefore, to persuade the Divan to apply itself to the Treaty of the 6th of July is to postpone the difficulty, not to solve it. The coincidence of the emancipation of Greece and the signing of peace between the Turks and Russians is, in my opinion, necessary to extricate the cabinets of Europe from their present embarrassment. What conditions will the Emperor Nicholas lay down for peace? In his manifesto he declares that he waives conquests, but he speaks of indemnities for the cost of the war. That is vague and may lead to much. Will the cabinet of St. Petersburg, pretending to regularise the treaties of Ackerman and Jassy, demand 1. The complete independence of the two principalities, 2. Liberty of commerce in the Black Sea, not only for Russia, but the other nations, 3. The repayment of the sums expended in this last campaign. Innumerable difficulties present themselves against the conclusion of a peace on these bases. If Russia desires to give the principalities sovereigns of her choosing, Austria will look upon Moldavia and Wallachia as two Russian provinces, and will oppose this political transaction. Will Moldavia and Wallachia fall under the sway of a prince, who shall be independent of any great power, or of a prince installed under the protectorate of several sovereigns? In that case, Nicholas would prefer the hospodars appointed by Mahmud, for the principalities, continuing to be Turkish, would remain vulnerable to the Russian armies. Liberty of commerce in the Black Sea the opening of that sea to all the fleets of Europe and America, would shake the power of the port to its foundations. To grant the right of passage of warships under Constantinople is, with reference to the geography of the Ottoman Empire, as though one were to recognise the right of foreign armies to cross France at all times, along the walls of Paris. Lastly, where would Turkey find the money to pay the cost of the campaign? The so-called treasure of the sultans is an antiquated fable, the provinces conquered beyond the Caucasus might, it is true, be ceded as security for the sum demanded. Of the two Russian armies, one in Europe appears to me to be entrusted with the interests of Nicholas' honour, the other in Asia with his pecuniary interests. But if Nicholas did not consider himself bound by the declarations of his manifesto, would England, with an indifferent eye, see the Muscovite soldier advancing along the road to India? Was she not alarmed already in 1827, when he took one more step forward in the Persian Empire. If the double difficulty arising from the carrying into effect of the treaty, and from the pertinence of the conditions of a peace between Turkey and Russia, were to render useless the efforts made to overcome so many obstacles, if a second campaign were to open in the spring, would the powers of Europe take sides in the quarrel? What part ought France to play? This is what I propose to examine in the second part of this note. Part 2. Austria and England have interests in common. They are naturally allied through their foreign policy, whatever otherwise may be the different forms of their governments, and the opposite maxims that regulate their home policy. 
both are hostile to and jealous of russia both desire to check the progress of that power they will perhaps unite in an extreme case but they feel that if russia does not allow herself to be overawed she can defy that union which is more formidable in appearance than in reality austria has nothing to ask from england the latter on her side is of no use to austria except to supply her with money now england crushed under the weight of her debt has no money left to lend to anybody austria if abandoned to her own resources would not in the present state of her finances be able to set large armies in motion especially as she is obliged to watch over italy and to stand on her guard on the frontiers of poland and prussia the present position of the russian troops would permit them to enter vienna earlier than constantinople what can the english do against russia close the baltic cease buying hemp and timber in the markets of the north destroy admiral van hyden's fleet in the mediterranean throw a few engineers and a few soldiers into constantinople stock that capital with foodstuffs and munitions of war penetrate into the black sea blockade the ports of the crimea deprive the russian troops in the field of the assistance of their commercial and naval fleets suppose all this to be accomplished which to begin with could not be done without considerable expenditure for which there would be neither compensation nor guarantee nicholas would still have his huge land force an attack on the part of austria and england against the cross on behalf of the crescent would increase the popularity in russia of what is already a national and religious war wars of this nature are waged without money it is they which by force of public opinion hurl nations one upon the other if the popes begin to evangelize in st petersburg as the ulemas are mohammedanizing in constantinople they will find more soldiers than they want they would stand a greater chance of success than their adversaries in this appeal to the passions and beliefs of men invasions which descend from north to south are much more rapid and much more irresistible than those which climb from south to north the propensity of the populations inclines them to flow towards beautiful climates would prussia remain an indifferent spectatress of this great struggle if austria and england declared for turkey there is no reason to think so there exists no doubt in the cabinet of berlin a party which hates and fears the cabinet of st petersburg but this party which moreover is beginning to grow old finds an obstacle in the anti-austrian party and especially in the domestic affections family ties generally weak among sovereigns are very strong in the prussian family king frederick william the third fondly loves his daughter the present empress of russia and he likes to think that his grandson will ascend the throne of peter the great princes frederick william charles henry albert are also greatly attached to their sister alexandra the hereditary prince royal saw no objection recently to declaring in rome that he was a turk eater by thus analyzing the interests we perceive that france is in an admirable political position she can become the arbitress of that great contest she can at her pleasure maintain neutrality or declare for a side according to the time and circumstances if she were ever obliged to go to that extremity if her counsels were not heard if the nobility and moderation of her conduct did not secure for her the peace which she desires for herself and for others then in the necessity in which she would find herself of taking up arms all her interests would incline her to the side of russia if an alliance were formed between austria and england against russia what benefit would france derive from her adhesion to that alliance would england lend ships to france france is still next to england the first naval power in europe she has more ships than she requires to destroy if necessary the naval forces of russia would england furnish us with subsidies england has no money 
France has more than she, and the French have no need to be in the pay of the British Parliament. Would England assist us with soldiers and arms? France is in no lack of arms, still less of soldiers. Would England assure us an increase of insular or continental territory? Where shall we secure that increase if we make war on Russia on behalf of the Grand Turk? Shall we attempt descents on the coasts of the Baltic, the Black Sea, and Bering Straits? Could we have any other hope? Should we expect to attach England to ourselves so that she should hasten to our assistance if ever our internal affairs came to be embroiled? Heaven protect us against any such prevision and against foreign intervention in our domestic affairs. England, besides, has always held kings and the liberty of nations cheap. She is always ready remorselessly to sacrifice monarchy or republic to her own interests. Only lately she proclaimed the independence of the Spanish colonies at the same time that she refused to recognize that of Greece. She sent her fleets to support the Mexican insurgents and caused a few paltry steamboats destined for the Hellenes to be seized in the Thames. She admitted the legality of the rights of Mahmud and denied that of the rights of Ferdinand. She is devoted by turns to despotism or democracy, according to the wind which brings the ships of the city merchants to her ports. Lastly, if we associated ourselves with the warlike projects of England and Austria against Russia, where should we go in search of our old adversary of Austerlitz? He is not on our frontiers. Should we then send out at our cost a hundred thousand men, fully equipped to succour Vienna or Constantinople? Should we have an army at Athens to protect the Greeks against the Turks, and an army at Adrianople to protect the Turks against the Russians? Should we fire grape-shot on the Osmanlis in the Morea, and embrace them on the Dardanelles. Nothing that lacks common sense in human affairs succeeds. Let us admit, nevertheless, that, against all likelihood, our efforts were crowned with complete success in this unnatural triple alliance. Let us suppose that Prussia remained neutral during all this strife, as well as the Netherlands, and that, free to move our forces abroad, we were not obliged to fight within sixty leagues of Paris. Well, what advantage should we derive from our crusade for the deliverance of the tomb of Mahomet. Knights of the Turks, we should return from the Levant with a fur-lined coat of honour. We should have the glory of having thrown away a thousand million francs and two hundred thousand men to calm the terrors of Austria, to satisfy the jealousies of England, to keep up in the fairest portion of the world the plague and barbarism attached to the Ottoman Empire. Austria would perhaps have enlarged her states on the side of Wallachia and Moldavia, and England would perhaps have obtained some commercial privileges from the port, privileges of little interest to us if we shared in them, as we have neither so large a number of merchant ships as the English, nor so many manufactured goods to spread in the Levant. We should be completely duped by this triple alliance, which might fail in its object and which, if it achieved it, would achieve it only at our expense. But if England has no direct means of being of use to us, could she not at least act upon the cabinet of Vienna and engage Austrians a compensation for the sacrifices we should make for her, to allow us to recover our old departments on the left bank of the Rhine? No. Austria and England will always oppose any such concession. Russia alone can make it to us, as we shall see hereafter. Austria detests and fears us, even more than she hates and dreads Russia. As a choice of evils, she would prefer to see the latter power expand on the side of Bulgaria, rather than France on the side of Bavaria. But would the independence of Europe be threatened if the Tsars made Constantinople the capital of the empire? It is necessary to explain what is understood by the independence of Europe. 
do we mean to say that all equilibrium being shattered russia after making the conquest of turkey in europe would seize austria subjugate germany and prussia and end by subjecting france first any empire which expands without measure loses some of its strength it almost always becomes divided soon we should see two or three russias hostile one to the other next does the equilibrium of europe exist for france since the last treaties england has retained almost all the conquests which she has made in the colonies of three quarters of the globe during the war of the revolution in europe she has gained malta and the ionian islands even her electorate of hanover she has inflated into a kingdom and enlarged by a few baronies austria has increased her possessions by a third of poland some pairings of bavaria and a part of dalmatia and italy she no longer it is true has the low countries but that province has not devolved upon france and it has become a formidable auxiliary of england and prussia as against ourselves prussia has enlarged herself by the duchy or palatinate of posen a fragment of saxony and the chief circles of the rhine her advance post is on our own territory at ten days march from our capital russia has recovered finland and settled down on the banks of the vistula and what have we gained in all these partitions we have been despoiled of our colonies not even our old soil has been respected landau detached from france Huningen demolished leave a breach of more than fifty leagues in our frontiers the little state of sardinia has not blushed to clothe herself in a few shreds stolen from the empire of napoleon and the kingdom of louis the great in this position what interest have we to safeguard austria and england against the victories of russia if the latter were to extend towards the east and alarm the cabinet of vienna should we be in any danger have we received so much consideration that we should be so sensible to the anxieties of our enemies england and austria have always been and will always be france's natural adversaries we should see them cheerfully join forces with russia to-morrow if it were a question of fighting us and plundering us let us not forget that while we should be taking up arms for the so-called safety of europe in peril by the supposed ambition of nicholas it would probably happen that austria less chivalrous and more rapacious than we would listen to the proposals of the cabinet of st petersburg an abrupt and sudden change of policy costs her little with the consent of russia she would seize bosnia and servia leaving to us the satisfaction of exerting ourselves for mahmoud france is already in a state of semi-hostility with the turks she alone has already spent many millions and endangered twenty thousand soldiers in the cause of greece england would lose only a few words by betraying the principles of the treaty of the sixth of july france would lose honour men and money our expedition would no longer be other than a real political miscarriage but if we do not unite with austria and england will the emperor nicholas then go to constantinople will the equilibrium of europe then be shattered let us to repeat once again leave these feigned or genuine fears to england and austria that the former should fear to see russia seize upon the trade of the levant and become a naval power matters little to us is it then so necessary that great britain should remain in possession of the monopoly of the seas that we should spill french blood to preserve the sceptre of the ocean for the destroyer of our colonies our fleets and our commerce is the legitimate dynasty to move armies in order to protect the house which coalesces with the illegitimacy and which is perhaps reserving for times of discord the means which it believes itself to possess to disturb france a fine equilibrium for us is that of europe 
when all the powers, as I have already shown, have increased their own bulk and with one accord diminished the weight of France. Let them return within their old boundaries as we have done. Then we shall fly to the aid of their independence, if that independence be threatened. They made no scruples to join hands with Russia, in order to dismember us and incorporate the fruit of our victories. Let them then suffer us to-day to draw closer the bonds formed between us and that same Russia, in order to recover suitable boundaries and restore the real balance of Europe. Besides, if the Emperor Nicholas were desirous and able to go to sign a peace in Constantinople, would the destruction of the Ottoman Empire be the strict consequence of that fact? Peace has been signed under arms in Vienna, in Berlin, in Paris. Almost all the capitals of Europe have been taken in these latter days. Have Austria, Bavaria, Prussia, Spain perish? Twice have the Cossacks and the Pandours come to camp in the courtyard of the Louvre. The kingdom of Henry the Fourth has been under military occupation during three years, and yet we should be quite touched to see the Cossacks in possession of the Seraglio, and we should show for the honour of barbarism the susceptibility which we did not display for the honour of civilization, and for our own country. Let the pride of the port be humbled, and then perhaps it will be obliged to recognise some of the rights of humanity which it outrages. I have now made evident whither I am tending, and the consequence which I am preparing to deduce from all the foregoing. Here is his consequence. If the belligerent powers cannot come to an arrangement during the winter, if the rest of Europe think itself bound in the spring to intervene in the quarrel, if different alliances be propounded, if France be absolutely obliged to choose between those alliances, if events force her to emerge from her neutrality, all her interests must needs determine her to unite by preference with Russia, a combination which is all the safer inasmuch as it would be easy, with the offer of certain advantages, to make Prussia enter into it. There is a sympathy between Russia and France. The latter has almost civilised the former in the upper classes of society, she has given her her language and her manners. Placed at the two extremities of Europe, France and Russia have no contiguous frontiers. They have no battlefield on which they can meet. They have no commercial rivalry. And the natural enemies of Russia, the English and Austrians, are also the natural enemies of France. In time of peace, let the cabinet of the Tuileries remain allied with the cabinet of St. Petersburg, and nothing can stir in Europe. In time of war, the union of the two cabinets will dictate laws to the world. I have shown sufficiently that the alliance of France with England and Austria against Russia is a dupe's alliance, in which we should find only loss of blood and treasure. The Russian alliance, on the contrary, would enable us to obtain establishments in the archipelago and to push back our frontier to the banks of the Rhine. We can hold this language to Nicholas. Your enemies are making overtures to us. We prefer peace to war, we prefer to preserve neutrality. But, however, if you cannot adjust your differences with Turkey except by arms, if you are determined to go to Constantinople, enter into an equitable partition of Turkey in Europe with the Christian powers. Those are the powers which are not so situated as to be able to enlarge their territory towards the east will receive compensation elsewhere. As for us, we wish to have the line of the Rhine from Strasbourg to Cologne. Those are our just claims. It is to Russia's interest, your brother Alexander has said so, that France should be strong. If you consent to this arrangement, and the other powers refuse, we will not suffer them to intervene in your dispute with Turkey. If they attack you in spite of our remonstrances, we will fight them with you, always on the conditions which we have just expressed. That is what we can say to Nicholas. Never will Austria, 
never will england give us the rhine boundary as the price of our alliance with them and yet it is there that france must sooner or later place her frontiers both for her honour and her safety a war with austria and england has many hopes of success and few chances of a reverse to begin with there are means of paralysing prussia of even persuading her to join us and russia should that happen the netherlands could not declare themselves hostile in the present condition of men's minds forty thousand frenchmen defending the alps would rouse all italy to action as for hostilities with england if they were ever to commence we should have either to throw twenty five thousand more men into the morea or promptly recall our troops and our fleet give up squadron formation disperse your ships singly over all the seas give orders that all prizes are to be sunk after the crews have been removed multiply your letters of mark in the ports of the four quarters of the globe and soon great britain forced by the bankruptcies and outcries of her trade will sue for the restoration of peace did we not see her in eighteen fourteen capitulate before the navy of the united states notwithstanding that this consists to-day of only nine frigates and eleven ships considered in the twofold respect of the general interests of society and of our own interests the war of russia against the port should give us no umbrage on the principle of the higher civilization the human race can only gain by the destruction of the ottoman empire it is a thousand times better for the nations that the cross should hold sway in constantinople than the crescent all the elements of morality and of political society are at the root of christianity all the germs of social destruction are in the religion of mahomet they say that the present sultan has taken steps towards civilization is this because he has tried with the assistance of a few french renegades of a few english and austrian officers to submit his irregular hordes to regular exercises and since when has the mechanical apprenticeship of arms constituted civilization it is an enormous mistake it is almost a crime to have initiated the turks into the science of our tactics we must baptize the soldiers whom we discipline unless we wish purposely to educate destroyers of society the want of foresight is great austria which applauds herself for organizing the ottoman armies would be the first to bear the penalty of her joy if the turks beat the russians they would be all the more capable of measuring their strength with the imperials their neighbours this time vienna would not escape the grand vizier would the rest of europe which thinks it has nothing to fear from the port be in greater safety passionate and short-sighted men want turkey to be a regular military power to enter into the common right of peace and war of civilized nations all in order to maintain some balance or other of which the mere word void of sense dispenses those men from having any idea what would be the consequences were those wishes realized whenever it pleased the sultan under any pretext to attack a christian government a well-manoeuvred constantinopolitan fleet augmented by the fleet of the pasha of egypt and the naval contingent of the barbary powers would declare the coast of spain or italy in a state of blockade and land fifty thousand men at cartagena or naples you do not wish to plant the cross on st sophia continue to discipline the hordes of turks albanians negroes and arabs and in less than twenty years perhaps the crescent will gleam on the dome of st peter's will you then summon europe to a crusade against infidels armed with the plague slavery and the koran it will be too late the general interests of society would therefore benefit by the success of the arms of the emperor nicholas as to france's own interests i approve sufficiently that these lie in an alliance with russia and that they may be singularly favoured by the very war which that power is to-day waging in the east end of book twelve part two